0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and GoGo. I'm Dr. Shane. A big hello to any of our listeners up there in Sydney who are currently locked down. Very sorry to hear that, but we hope you're doing well. Um, you will get through it. But we have an hour of science for you now. On the line with me is a big bunch of my team members. Good morning, Stacey. Hi, Dr. Shane. Good to hear from you. You're, uh, you're up in the country somewhere just living it up.
1: Yeah, living the life in the country. Although I've I've, I've managed to um, escape this weekend um, in Phillip Island. i uh, having a beach winter beach
0: retreat. Oh, very nice, very yeah. nice. Yes, it uh, could be worse places. Anu, you look like you're at the university.
2: Good morning, Dr. Shane. That's right. I'm here on campus doing some um, guilt-ridden uni work.
0: (laughs) Very good. And you're even sporting a Deacon hoodie to let us know where you all are. Very nice. And Ailey, (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Ailey, I believe is probably home because she's using a virtual background of a snow, a snowscape. Good morning, Ailey.
3: Oh, good morning. I wish I was in the snow. My Zoom background's the, uh, the snow up at Lake Mountain, and um, I wish I was there. But unfortunately, I'm just in my study.
0: Can I just say, I obsessively watch the video cams that are based at Lake Mountain, and they've had a rough run so far this season. They haven't had any dec- – well, they had a little bit a few weeks back, but then it got rained away. And yep. uh, I know they to got a little bit due this week, hopefully, yeah. um, for the school holidays. Yeah,
3: Lake, Lake Mountain's an interesting one, actually. Big declines in snowfall over the last 20 years there. Yeah. Very
0: yeah, it's a bit crap. Um, hopefully, they'll get some good falls soon, so that'd be good. Now, let's jump into some science news. Uh, Ailey, we've got you on the line already, so might as well go straight to you.
3: All right, well, actually, snow is a great way to start because I'm going to talk about ice today. Cool. In particular, I'm going to talk about giant ice cliffs, and I'm not talking about those ones that, uh, you know, Jon Snow sits on the wall in Game (laughs) of Thrones. That that reference is probably now anyway, isn't it? Yep, (laughs) yep. That was so 2019. Too old. But anyway, (laughs) so um, I'm talking about giant ice cliffs, and the reason I'm talking about giant ice cliffs Uh, is because they're actually really important for climate change. And one of the biggest unknowns that we have around sea level rise and around how ice will melt with climate change is to do with how glaciers move. You know, glaciers actually move. They don't just sit there statically. They're, They're giant flows of ice. And so to understand how they move and understand how they melt in particular tells us a lot about sea level rise into the future. We don't know a lot about this. And one of the reasons we don't know about this very well is because the number of records that we have, particularly of the big ice flows around kind of Antarctica and those areas are really short. You know, the satellite record lasts maximum of the of 40 years. Uh, Field campaigns are expensive, they're short lived, so we don't get to see a lot of these things. But one of the concerns over the years is that when we think about ice cliffs, so these things are kind of, you know, one to 200 metres, maybe four or 500 metres high in some cases, they really act like giant plugs for the glacier. So when your ice shelf at the front, or your ice cliff, I should say, starts to collapse and melts and falls into the ocean, basically, Uh, the ice behind it starts flowing faster and pushes out into the ocean more quickly, which allows that part to melt and you kind of get this runaway effect of the glacier. So people have been worried about this for a long time. But last week there was this fabulous new study that's kind of really thought, a bit more carefully about how this uh, ice cliff collapse happens and they did some really um, funky computer modelling of these ice cliffs and basically showed that what we've been thinking about ice cliffs might not be as bad as we first thought. Thought, so this is a group from the University of Michigan, and they published this in Science. And what they did was have a look at ice, uh, you know, kind of virtual ice cliffs on dry land, and then virtual ice cliffs in front of uh, big glaciers. And they kind of tried to understand how they collapse. And what they found was that when they made these virtual ice shelves collapse from the glacier, and they kind of, you know, moved all the ice out into the ocean, and all that ice was allowed to flow away we got that kind of glacial, big glacial movement and rapid melting of the glacier from the front, which is what we kind of had expected, so uh oh But then what they also found was that if they allowed a few of the big icebergs that carved off the front of that ice cliff to kind of hang around, it actually ended up buttressing the rest of the glacier. Mm. And so instead of just flowing out super quickly and melting, even a small, a relatively small amount of ice could basically replug the glacier to some extent so it wouldn't melt as quickly. So this is actually quite good news. Um, you know, whether this happens in the real world, we're not quite sure about because, as I said, the observations are quite limited. Um, but at least some of the commentary around this article has been talking about how perhaps it's a little bit more realistic uh, than just thinking mm. that... You know, uh, all glaciers will start melting super quickly if if ice cliffs carve off the
0: front. So yeah,
3: it's really really interesting stuff, moving the the science of glaciology forward.
0: Yeah, a little bit of hope. Um, yeah, doesn't take away all the bad news, but a little bit of hope. So let's uh, let's hope that that does play out. Actually, that'd be nice. Stacey, what have you got for us? Oh
1: well, um, this week scientists in China have made some remarkable announcements um, relating some to some work that they did examining an ancient human cranium.
0: Mm. Yes, yeah. yes, this one's been yeah, the news a little bit, heard... I saw this, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, so, um, and it's no ordinary announcement because they're suggesting that they may have found a new human species, which may in fact be our closest evolutionary relative. So um, they've coined um, this, this chap dragon man, or Homo longi, so a new Homo species, and that reflects the location where the fossil was originally found, which was near the Songhua River in Harbin in the city of... Um, a, north, a northeastern uh, Chinese city. Um, and so the river itself translates in English to Black Dragon River. So that's why they've called him Dragon Man.
0: Besides but the fact the cranium, it's just a cool name.
1: That's a cool name.
0: Yeah, yeah it's like i, I got to say. Man. En- yeah, it's pretty rare that uh, science comes out with a cool name. Um, yeah. That's a cool name. Credit.
1: Oh, it's a cool name. Yep. It's, it's it's like my the, the cool zombie fires I was talking about the other yep. week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. You've got to have a catchy title, otherwise people will tune out. Yep. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, so this cranium itself isn't a, a new discovery. It was found in 1933 by a Chinese construction worker who was working in the Japanese-occupied region at the time, um, and he was um, constructing a bridge over this Songhua River, and he discovered this um, craniums that. Buried in the riverbank, and he didn't want to um, alert his Japanese supervisors to this treasure, so he hid it in his family's well in the in the wall of the well, and it has remained there for the last eighty years. Awesome! Uh, I know it's a <laughs> great, <story. laughs> and he didn't he um he was you know nearing the end of his life recently, and so he finally divulged to his family that he had this um this you know fossil in his well, and so that's how this um how it ended up in the hands of scientists today. Wow. Yeah. So they the family donated um, the the cranium to the uh, Hebei University um, in China, and using specialist dating technologies, the paleontologists there were able to estimate that Dragon Man lived in East Asia at least 146,000 years ago. So they used um, strontium isotopes um, in soil sediments that had deposited in his a nasal cavity, and then I coupled that with uranium series dating on the bone and together suggest at least um, it's putting in at about 146,000 years old. And then I had to characterise what it looked like. And so basically there's quite a combination of very primitive and more modern features in this man so they've described the cranium as massive so a very large head compared to other human species large eyes and almost square eye sockets cool Uh, yeah (laughs) thick thick brow ridges uh oversized teeth and a wide mouth oh alie's got a question well you said dragon man do they know it's a man (laughs) well they do (laughs) Um, they're, su- they're suggesting I forget how they um how they thought it was a man but um yeah they dated him and given his features of the cranium pinned him to a 50 year old or roughly you know he would have died when he was a 50 year old man but yeah pretty old actually yeah that's what I would have thought yeah
0: yeah but yeah the but big head, head, big head big brain you know
1: uh, no, no, no. It out Small with his brain, eyebrows right <laughs> so he's got a Big head, big ugly eyebrows, but the cavity in which the brain sat um, is roughly comparable in size um, to those from our species, right? Okay. So, the, And then he's got other similar features to modern human species, such as a short face and small cheekbones. Cool. <laughs> hmm. so he maybe he was attractive. Not sure. Anyway, and it's this combination of primitive and um, modern features um, that uh, have led the researchers to conclude that they think it is a unique sister lineage to our species, the Homo sapiens.
0: Fantastic.
4: Um,
1: mm. Yeah. But, there, I mean, there's with all scientific discoveries, it's not so black and white, and others are suggesting... That it might be a fossil linked to the uh, Denisovans. Um, You know, there was several other lineages where Homo sapiens sort of co-inhabited with, with like the Denisovans and Neanderthals and other Homo species. Um, So whether it's like um, a brand new sort of Homo um, species or whether it's Denisovans, it's still a pretty impressive finding and sheds new light on diversification of our species.
0: And besides anything else, I just love the backstory of this guy hanging onto it for eighty years. I mean, that's the best. That is the best part of this, This. news. I find that is fantastic. Thanks, Stacey. Anu, what have you got for us?
2: Speaking of big heads, today I'm going to be talking about neuroticism and risk-taking and the role of competition with former winners or losers, which I think relates quite interestingly with Stacey's story because a lot of um, neurosis is actually related to the threat of losing um, existing resources. And so I've actually been reading a book this last week called The Road Less Travelled, and it's by M. Scott Peck, who's a psychiatrist, and he talks about uh, neurosis and character disorders and how um, how you've got people with neurosis who often use terms like I should have worked harder. or I should have done something. And then you've got those with character disorders who are quite aversive to taking responsibility. So they they might use words like, oh, I had to do that. I had to park in that spot. I had to, you know, do whatever it was. So this kind of like led me, um, this actually got me quite curious because my area is human performance and most specifically in space, but also working around those high performance types. So I started to do a little bit of research into high performing individuals and neurosis to see what what I would come up with. Most recently this year, actually, um, there was a paper called Neuroticism and Risk-Taking the Role of Competition with a Former Winner or Loser, and it was published in an Elsevier publication titled Personality and Individual Differences, and this was um, authored by Lai and colleagues who are uh, from like various uh, universities around China, and while I was scoping literature for this story, I did find a lot of research in this area relating to finance professionals and also their um, risk-taking propensity against their um, high neuro- neurotic Personality types, and the, however, this study did not have any conflicting interests, and it was, fine, it was funded completely by national science institutes and um, foundation grants. The authors in this paper define neurosis as being a highly emotionally aroused state when presented with stress or threat. Um, They do talk about how uh, competition and prospect theory, which involves those with high neuroticism and low neuroticism, especially those with high neuroticism, to um, almost appraise their competition in a particular situation to determine whether they are winners or losers and then adjust their risk-taking behaviour based off of that. So they conducted a study and they recruited 250 participants. Um, with a 50-50 male-to-female ratio, and these subjects took a neuroticism extraversion openness personality inventory test, um, which is used to assess neuroticism, and about half of those were then recruited to participate in a lab study. And when they were um, brought into the lab to partake in the study, they used what is called a balloon analogue risk task test. And this is quite a standard test. Uh, It's a standard measurement uh, that we see across studies in human performance. And it's used used to measure a large range of risk-taking behaviours. And essentially, what happens in this test is that you've got a screen in front of you, and you you basically enter a number from one to one hundred twenty-eight, and this balloon inflates how many how many of a pumps that you've just entered in. If that makes sense, um, if you enter too many pumps, it explodes, and then you get no points. If you um, enter just the right amount, based off of like whatever your opponent is also entering, um, you get the amount of points that you how many of the pumps you actually entered in the first place. I'm, I'm probably explaining it very badly. Um, so essentially, they pitted a high neurotic individual against a low neurotic individual for the very first round, and then you had a winner or a loser. And then from that point onwards, you, they were told whether they were going to be competing against a high neurotic or, oh, sorry, a winner or a loser from a previous round. So moving forward, they did find that the results indicated um, that depending on whether they were competing with a high neurotic individual, they took higher risks. And if they were, um, if they were competing against a Loser, they manage to be more risk averse. So I will wrap that up because I can see Shane just pointing at the clock.
0: <laughs> yep, we're out of time. Thanks, Anu. All right, folks, we're going to okay. have to hold our news there. Thanks, team.
4: Triple R.
0: Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. I'm Dr Shane, and on the line with me now, all the way from Sydney, where he has nothing better to do because he is locked down, but Dr Duncan Wallace is the Executive Director um, of Spinal Cure. Morning, Duncan. How are you going? Good morning, and thanks for
4: the promotion there. But oh, yeah. No, I, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> oh, that's okay.
0: <laughs> we hand them out like yeah,
4: candy. I appreciate
0: it. Now, you're locked down in Sydney. How's that going in day one?
4: We are, um, we've been working from home for a while anyway, Mm. Uh, just it's it's been more convenient that way than trekking into town for the last year. But uh, yeah, so far so good. But I imagine in the fortnight when we get out of here, we'll be ready.
0: Yeah, I suspect so too. Well, hopefully it will only be a fortnight and there'll be a nice quick run like we recently had here in Melbourne. Now, you work in an area which is um, one that has a, well, you know, if successful, some of the work you're doing will have profound impacts on, on a very large number of people. And look, it's all around spinal cord injury. Give us a bit of a, a rundown before we talk about the work you're doing on what sort of spinal cord injuries we see and what some of the impacts that that we get from those? Because I suspect everyone's aware of the sort of walking, not walking scenario, but there's a lot more to mm-hmm. it as well.
4: Oh, there is indeed. A, uh, uh, there's around 20,000 people affected by spinal cord injury. And you've got to add to that all their loved ones, family, yep. friends, um, in Australia, that is. And uh, we're seeing a little more than one new injury every day. Um, those injuries commonly from... Motor vehicle accidents. Uh, the big two are motor vehicle accidents and just everyday falls, mm. people falling off ladders, tripping off tripping over on pavement, slipping in the bath, down the stairs, whatever else. Um, there are also of course significant numbers of spinal cord injuries from uh, sporting industry uh, sporting uh, readers, uh, water sports, you know rugby horse riding, uh, surfing, people diving into sandbanks, that sort mm. of thing. So uh, it can happen to anybody at any time right? um, and it doesn't discriminate. I mean it is skewed a little bit to
0: just um, sort of the, the uh, we call of so d- disease of testosterone you know? right
4: <laughs> skewed a little to um, uh, young men um, who are out there doing all these uh, energetic sports but yep. um, it really can happen to anybody uh, it, it, the numbers of Injuries we're seeing in elderly people are increasing because I think in in the society now they're encouraged to do a lot more than they used to be. Hmm. So um, now, yeah, and so as you said, it doesn't just affect your ability to walk or or move. And we think of that as the little bit of the iceberg peeking out of the water, Um, but under uh, underneath the uh, water, there's lurking this great list of. uh, of other issues that make living with a spinal cord injury so heinous uh it's things like uh, bladder and bowel control um uh, sexual function it's cardiovascular stability i mean blood pressure swings quite ridiculous i i've had to actually from my own point of view i explain to your listeners that uh, I've been in a a quadriplegic now for what, 37 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm pretty much paralyzed from shoulders down. I have some movement in my arms, but not in my hands. Um, Now, I've been testing my blood pressure because it's been going a It's going down to sort of uh, uh, 60 on 45 middle of the morning and up to 190 on 115 in the evening so wow you yeah. know this, how do you, how do you cope with something like that? Yeah. so it is it, the spinal cord itself handles communication between so many different aspects of your bodily functions and the brain. And once you cut that communication off, um, then the the poor old body doesn't know what it's up to.
0: Mm. Duncan, how much of what uh, you're discussing there is sort of the, you know, one of the the examples I always like to talk about is um, things like blinking and breathing, you know, where they're the sort of things that we do when we're not thinking about them, but we can also Mm -hmm. do them consciously as well. With, With the spinal cord function, how much of it is sort of just the stuff that we're not, I mean, obviously blood pressure is something that we don't, we don't control Um, is the majority of it in that category of stuff that our body just does for us without us having to work, you know?
4: Yes. um, I guess it is. I mean, the the sort of the other side of that is, is movement. It's Mm. um, having your, I don't know why my computer was just flicking there. Sorry about that. Um, The, uh, yeah, but uh, um, we've, we've got, so I guess it's things like right down to digestive function, we, we talk a lot about gut brain, mm. um, where the uh, the bacteria in your stomach and digestive system affect not only your mood but your general health, your psychological stability, everything. Now the communication from that arena also goes through the spinal cord. Yep. And uh, there's another thing that so your digestive system is all messed up. Yep. It's, uh, um, a lot of them are these autonomic functions but the uh, the good news of course is that the research we've been um, following and promoting uh, funding recently is having an effect on all those things as well not just the ability to move
0: yeah so look that that's a good segue into into what you have been up to because I think it's it's interesting. Most of our listeners would have heard the term neuroplasticity before, but you're taking specific advantage of this in terms of uh, potential treatments for some of these some of these injuries. And I should say some of them are probably well out of range, but some of them, there's the potential for treatment. So talk us through what you're up to. Yeah,
4: well, I guess we've got three major areas that we're trying to uh, attend to for spinal cord injury recovery. Um, the first of those... Uh, relates to acute injuries where there's a sort of secondary inflammatory response uh, in addition to the initial trauma. Mm-hmm. Now, if you can control that with targeted anti-inflammatories, um, you can stop a lot of that permanent damage happening in the first place. And we've got a, uh, been helped with some research in clinical trial at the moment with a drug called IVIG, um, up at the University of Queensland with a brilliant young scientist by the name of Mark Rutenberg. Now we we are uh, sort of early indications are encouraging there, so we're we're hoping that that will end up being a mainstream uh, treatment for new injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, we also, of course, want to regrow nerves in the damaged area. Um, that's a bigger ask. That's where things like stem cells and um, drug therapies come in. Um, there's a lot of work still to do there before that becomes mainstream. But uh, the the most exciting one and, the, and the, you know, the reason that you gave us a call in the first place uh, to us is making use of surviving nerve pathways that aren't damaged by the initial trauma. Most injuries we see in Australia are contusion injuries where um, you know, one of the joints of the spinal cord is pushed out of whack and um, bruises or damages the spinal cord, but it doesn't sever it. We don't have that terrible problem they've got, say, in the United States with gunshot wounds mm. where, um, and, and violence where um, the, the spinal cord is completely severed. Um, but with the ones we see in Australia, they're almost all contusion injuries where some nerve pathways remain intact, these tend to go dormant. So using uh, electrical stimulation of the spinal cord, um, you can kind of wake them up. You raise the excitability of, of the, the spinal cord below the level of injury. And it allows those messages trying to sneak through um, these undamaged pathways to be heard and acted upon by the spinal cord. I mean, it the chap who pioneered this over in the States, uh, Professor Reggie Edgerton, um, the wonderful gentleman, he, he described it as to me as if the uh, if the bridge is down on the freeway, you can still get to work through the side streets. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> um, so that's what we're doing at Neura here in Sydney. Um, we've uh, introduced this research to Australia. Um, we have a clinical trial up and running. Um, it's a double-blinded, um, cold-standard trial, which has been a, a sort of key missing element in the global uh, evidence to support neurostimulation. And um, we're hoping that this will ease the uh, passage through the regulatory process and enable us to get this treatment out to people because yep. the results have been extraordinary.
0: Yep. Duncan, it sounds amazing. Um, we're, we're pretty much out of time, but where should people go to find information about this or to support this or become part of the trial, if need be?
4: Well, uh, they can go to our website, spinalcure.org.au, and um, you'll you'll find links there to Neura um, and to the wonderful team led by Professor Simon Gandivia. And there's also a nice... Fat button on that website for donations to help us get it to the next stage.
0: Yep. Well, Duncan, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck with this work. I mean, um, this this whole idea of you know repurp- repurposing in the way some of those those pathways that are no longer functioning and making them making them work for us is fascinating. And I think there's there's a lot lot of interest there. And I've read a few things here and there, and um, it looks like um, something that if we can get that going, will be really special for a lot of people. And as you say, it's not just about walking; it's about so many other parts of the body that we need to function effectively. Um, good, Good luck. Many thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Duncan. That was Duncan Wallace, folks, uh, the executive director of Spinal Cure.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org. On the line now, we we have Professor
0: Nicole Lagruda, who is an ARC Future Fellow. In the Department of Micro, uh, sorry, the Department of Chemistry and Molecular Biology and the Biomedicine Discovery Institute down at Monash University. I probably missed a few things there, Nicole. How are you going? Good, thanks.
5: Thanks, Shane. It's Pleasure good. to be here.
0: It's good to have you on the line. Now, you work in the area of T cells. And I guess uh, 10, 15 years ago, we weren't talking about T cells. No one cared, but um, they're, the biggest, they're the biggest thing these days. One of my co hosts, um, Laura works a lot in T-cells at the Doherty and um, you know, they're, they're so important to our immunity. Just give us a quick rundown before we get into your work on what T-cells are and what they do in the body.
5: Oh, well, T-cells are critically important and the particular T-cells I work on, CD8 T-cells, are especially important for clearing from the body virally infected cells and cancer cells. And, I mean, I think that's why the interest has arisen in, in recent years because of the, um, you know, the amazing cancer and immunotherapies that
0: really centre on T-cell function. Yeah. Now, you're, I mean, what you're looking at is something, I'm not going to get some of this wrong, so you have to correct me because I'm a physicist, so, you know, these sort of, any anything to do with cell, I just don't understand. But when when an infection comes into the body, our, our T-cells presumably have to work out what that infection is, yeah? I mean, how do they go about determining that and then, telling the rest of the body what it needs to know.
5: Yeah, well, T-cells are constantly scanning the body to make sure everything's in order. And so when they see that nothing's out of order, they leave cells alone. But but what infected cells do is that they throw up parts of the viral fragments on their cell surface. And so the T-cells can recognise that as an infected cell and they recognise that through their T-cell receptor. And that recognition event then sort of is translated by the T cell into uh, an activation event. And when the T cell gets activated, it can then direct sort of a kill hit to that infected cell to eliminate it from the body. And that's important because infected cells can act as virus factories producing lots of virus particles. So they eliminate those cells as virus factories.
0: Does every T cell hold all the information? Like,
5: no. Yeah. So that's important. Every T-cell has a different T-cell receptor. And so okay. each T-cell receptor is specific for a different part of a virus or a different cancer antigen or you know, you know a whole raft of different sort of uh, antigens that a, a particular T-cell is responsible for.
0: Right. So we need a lot of them, presumably then. That's right. Yeah. Do,
5: Millions.
0: Do, mm. Yeah. I was going to ask you that because do we have any idea how many different pathogens um, we're exposed to? Like, it, like. can I say that my T-cells are good to go on 29 pathogens or is it or is it like, you know, 150,000? Do we, do we have a, a feel for that? Well,
5: that's interesting. So the, the theoretical diversity of the T-cell receptor repertoire is between 10 to the 15 and 10 to the 18. So that's what the system can make. Whoa. But, of course, we can't squash that many T-cells into our bodies. So in humans, it's thought to be around uh, 10 to the 7, 10 to the 8, different uh, T cell receptors and, in you know, in mice sort of an order or so magnitude less than that. Um, so that's theoretically the capacity of our mm. immune system to sort of recognise different. And it's not just different viruses, but different fragments from each virus as well.
0: Yeah, I suppose we're seeing that at the moment, aren't we, with COVID, where the fragment is the bit that's changing and, and freaking us all out so much is that, you know, this this one little piece has changed and all of a sudden our immunity has changed and our vaccination success rates has changed and its ability to do this, that or the other has changed. And there's, they're just these little fragments, right? Little chemicals.
5: Right. So it's sort of protein, fragments of the protein known as peptides, and they get presented and to the immune system, to T-cells, and that's what triggers the T-cell response. So that's different to B-cell responses, which recognise sort of more of the entire sort of protein structure or large. Parts of the protein structure.
0: Mm. So, how do you go about when you're looking at these T cells? I mean, how do you go about collecting them? Like, what, what's the process for you getting them into a dish in your lab?
5: So, um, when we look at T cells in in uh, mice, we you know we typically take them from the um, secondary lymphoid organs. So, the spleen is, mm-hmm. is a is a key source. And when we're looking at T cells from humans, we take them from peripheral blood and look at them. But we can actually identify from, from an uninfected human, for example, or an uninfected mouse, we can identify T cells that are specific for particular um, virus fragments. So um, we have a sensitive uh, protocol to be able to do that. Mm. So that's essentially able to sort of look at the arsenal of T cells that we have in our body that, that can respond to a particular virus should we encounter it down the line.
0: Yep. So what have you been finding in your lab with regards to this response that T cells have and I guess there's there's got to be some sort of rule book as to which ones do what and so forth. I mean Yeah.
5: So that's actually what we didn't know, you know, completely is the rules around. So essentially what we know is that a T cell receptor has to recognize a particular viral fragment and that recognition event gets trans- translated into an activating signal and that's sort of where we we sort of lacked all the information around how those two things are connected. And so what what we did, so this was work done in collaboration with Jamie Ross, John, Stephanie Gra, and Peru Zare from my lab. But what we did was we took T cell receptors that we knew, actually recognised their antigen in a weird way and actually weren't capable of initiating T cell activation. Hmm. And so we thought, okay, well, let's use these as a, as essentially kind of a system where where it doesn't work, and work out why it doesn't work, and so we use those unusual T cell receptors, and what we found was that, a, you know, T cell receptors need to see their antigen in a particular way in order for the signal transduction to occur that then activates the T cells, and we we hadn't really appreciated that before. And so, um, you know, I think um, it it just sort of means that there's these structural constraints on how the T cell receptor recognises the antigen. And the reason for that constraint, which we uh, also showed in our recent paper, is that it's because that recognition modality is important to bring key signalling molecules together to initiate that signalling pathway.
0: Mm. I mean, I, I find this stuff, I mean, it's super complex in a way, the way that our immune system works. And we've always known that. I remember about 10, 15 years ago, I said the two big things that I was really excited about in science was one, anything to do with the brain. So neuroscience and understanding, especially the neuronal connections with the gut. And and this stuff was just like, you know, greenfield space that we really knew very little by comparison. But the, but the second part, of course, is the immune system and just understanding just how much it does. Like, we, we used to think of it as just, you know, responding to pathogens. But but um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but one of the things I ask whenever I get an uh, immunology sort of specialist of any type on, I ask them about cancer and how do we get cancer as we get older because essentially we've been getting cancer our whole life, but our immune system is just good at kicking its butt. Is that is that the scenario? Is that what's happening? Well,
5: it's certainly one theory. We know we get immunosenescence as we get older. So the immune system does decline both in in number of cells but Mm. also in the function of those cells. So we certainly, you know, are aware that the immune system is responsible for that sort of, um, I guess, surveillance, immunosurveillance and and getting rid of cancer cells as they arise. Um, So that is a possibility that sort of the age-related dysfunction in the T cells is causing cancers to arise. Yeah. yeah.
0: The, the other thing, and, and we've only got a couple of minutes, so I'd quickly ask you, but I've, I'm always super curious about how our bodies evolved and how we evolved some of these functions. Our, our immune systems are incredibly complicated and the response that they can give is incredibly diverse and, and complicated as well. That must mean that we were exposed to a lot of really freaky shit early on in our evolution. Yeah. I mean, there must have been some some nasty stuff poking around. It's not just recent, like there's some of this stuff is ancient. Yeah.
5: Yeah, and there's actually some suggestion that our receptors have evolved to recognise these sort of ancient viruses and pathogens that, that have been around for, for sort of equally as long, there is some evidence to suggest that there is kind of this complementarity between the receptors and these ancient pathogens. So, yeah, that's that's likely to be very much the case, that that's driven the evolution of these, of the diversity, I suppose, and the complexity.
0: Yeah. And presumably with the work you're doing, this, this gives us more, of a, more, more control over potentially modifying some of these T cells if they're not doing their job Properly in certain patients, yeah, because there's a lot of autoimmune diseases where these things go astray.
5: Well, that's right, and I think what what this work shows is that it's it's a constraint mechanism. So it, what it means is that a T cell receptor might cross react with different antigens, but it but it can't necessarily signal when it binds that that particular antigen. And and I see that as possibly a way of trying to control or, or prevent. Uh, something like autoimmunity, or mm. virus-driven autoimmunity, because it, yeah, it's essentially—it's recognition isn't the only thing that drives the signalling. There's another checkpoint beyond that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you think we'll find out that all autoimmune diseases in ten years are all caused by virus at some point? Is that—is that, is that going to pop <laughs> up?
5: Um, I'm not sure about that. Possibly. Yeah. But I think there's certainly clear evidence in certain situations that that autoimmunity is is driven through cross reactivity or molecular mimicry. It's referred to um, right. with viruses. But um, I'm not sure about all of them, but, all of them. but yep. certainly some
0: of them. <laughs> watch, watch this space, eh? watch this space. Uh, yeah, right. Nicole, thanks so much for chatting to us. Good luck with that work. I mean, the T-cell stuff, it must be such an exciting area to be in over the last decade because the the whole field's just exploded and it's it's amazing. Oh. It's amazing, amazing stuff coming out. So thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gogo. Thanks a
5: lot, James.
0: Pleasure. Folks, that was uh, Professor Nicole Lagruda from Monash University talking about T-cells.
5: Triple R
6: on FM, digital, online, and via the app.
0: On the line now, I have Professor Grant Macarthur. He is from the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre. Good morning, Grant. You've been on the show a few times before. It's good to have you back.
6: Yeah, great
0: to be back and uh, good morning to you and the listeners. Now, Grant, you um, tell us a bit first about your role at the VCCC. I mean, many people in Melbourne in particular would know of the, the beautiful new cancer building on Royal Parade there, um, better known as the, I guess, the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, but it's also what we call the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre because it involves quite a few things. So what's your role there?
6: Yeah, um, I'm the Executive Director of the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre Alliance. So as well as a building, there are 10 um, Alliance members, um, as well as other partners that really work closely together to uh, really affect system change in research-led improvements in cancer you know, for all of Victoria. So, yes, there's a, a beautiful building, but uh, the investment in the building was supported by the vision that the, really we wanted cutting-edge cancer research and um, the educational programs that run from that to be available for all Victorians.
0: Yep. Now, look, it's a, it's a spectacular... Um Building, But it's also a spectacular alliance with so many organisations involved in contributing. Now, it must have been a very stressful time the, the last sort of year and a half with regards to many cancer patients and the impact that COVID has on both their treatment and the potential risks to them, I'm assuming.
6: Yeah, absolutely, Shane. Look, there's um, quite a number of uh, uh, challenges. I mean, cancer care is very complicated. We bring, you know, a lot of modalities together, uh, surgery, radiation, the different types of drug therapy now, immunotherapies, targeted Mm -hmm. therapies, chemotherapy, a whole lot of different uh, complex treatments that all come together for that has led to this, you know, amazing improvement in cancer outcomes. Now, where seventy percent of people will be alive five years after a uh, cancer diagnosis, and that's up, you know, in the last in the last thirty years, that's improved from fifty percent to seventy percent. So, it's yep. fantastic. But when you are hit with a pandemic and a lot of real challenges in the health system to care for um, uh, people in the setting of a respiratory virus pandemic, then delivering care is more difficult. Um, and the big, big issues for us really have been, um, it, firstly, that patients uh, 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 have not been diagnosed at the same rate as they would normally. So we anticipate that there's over 2,000 Victorians that have had a delay in their cancer diagnosis uh, during uh, due to COVID. Wow. An indirect consequence of COVID. Yeah, quite amazing worrying statistics. You know, people not get to their GP, they've uh, missed uh, screening um, investigations for their, their pick-up cancers early, and so there's this extra burden of cancer. So that's one issue we're dealing with. Yep. The other very important issue is that if cancer patients get infected with the, um, the uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes uh, COVID-19, the outcomes are worse. Higher rates of hospitalisation, intensive care and most worrying uh, increased mortality rates where in fact, you know, one in four cancer patients based on the international data actually die if they get uh, COVID um, and yes. that is, you know, not that far behind one in three aged care residents, which is the, the thing we've been, you know, very worried about in Victoria. So, you know, we're extremely enthusiastic, keen, encouraging uh People with cancer
0: to uh, get vaccinated. I suppose uh, well, a couple of things. I mean, one is I'm assuming the other part of the the, the problem is a delay in certain treatments. I mean, even down the sort of uh, the sort of lighter end of cancer treatments. I know my my father was at uh, your very hospital last week and is back there on Tuesday, and he's um, got some relatively minor skin surgeries to have, but um, but that was that was delayed by. By a period as a result of the recent Melbourne lockdowns, that that must be a real concern for for all of you there. That's uh, you know some of these surgeries, the surgeries and treatments um, would have been delayed in the last 18 months.
6: Yeah, look, they are pretty good in the Australian and Victorian health system at prioritising uh, cancer um, treatments and particularly surgery. Yep. So there have. There've only been fairly minor delays mm-hmm. for um, non-urgent surgical cases, so we've we've held up the, the high priority uh, cancer operations have been occurring with uh, pretty much not affected. The actual bigger problem is getting people diagnosed in the first place, in these yep. so-called missing cases, yep. um, where people are, you know, and that's what we're most worried about because with cancer, of course. Um, although the biology of cancer is that it's a long time in in gestation, so to speak, in terms of uh, turning from, a, from the first changes in cells to a full-blown cancer. That takes a long time. Mm. But if you're delayed in the diagnosis, then the cancer cells have an opportunity, unfortunately, to spread. So mm. that's what worries us the most and why, um, you know, we're very, very keen, you know, that... Uh, People do continue to engage, you know, during all these uh, lockdowns, et cetera, with their, um, with their primary care physicians, their GPs, so in order to uh, ensure that cancers are detected uh, early. Yeah. So, yeah, big, big worry um, and uh, and something which, you know, we've been you know, getting the, the message out. You know, the difficulty in COVID, of course, is, you know, there's a lot of health messages out there mm. and we're a little worried gets drowned out by, you know, the, the constant media fixation on case numbers and
0: so forth. Yeah. Now with, with the vaccination scenario uh Grant, I mean, we've seen the the absolute um, you know decimation of uh sort of I guess belief in the AstraZeneca vaccine as a result of an ongoing media campaign to destroy every ounce of public confidence in that, that vaccination. I mean what what's the deal in terms of access for for cancer patients? Because for the majority of the population, access at the moment is is the biggest problem, um, and, you know, unless you're over 60, it's pretty hard to go and get yourself vaccinated at the moment, and I think people are managing to get through um, for, you know, to some degree, but um, what's the case, what's what's happening for people who have got a cancer diagnosis? Do they have any priority?
6: Yeah, so there's been a roadmap for vaccination in various phases of vaccination, and uh, phase um, the first phase uh, of vaccination, Phase 1A, were aged care residents, aged care workers, our frontline quarantine uh, workers at uh, airports, et cetera, and also our frontline health workers. So that was so-called Phase 1A for priority. Phase 1B is actually Right. So it's sort of, you know, not far behind in priority to all those, you know, vital uh, frontline quarantine and healthcare workers. So, uh, cancer patients are, are prioritised. Of course, with the rollout being slower than everyone was hoping, there is uh, some, uh, still some limitations on access for the under-60s to the Pfizer vaccine. is not as uh, readily available as everyone would like, but uh, the projections are that that is going to increase its availability in the weeks ahead. So... Please uh, encourage all cancer patients to, you know, get a booking, you know, to have your vaccine, whether it be AstraZeneca or Pfizer. Shane, I had AstraZeneca myself um, due to my second dose this coming week. Um, I've actually had a history of blood clots and uh, Mm. I had no hesitation at all because these side effects are exceptionally rare. Whereas we're seeing right at the moment in New South Wales, um, we will get breakouts of COVID and COVID is just so deadly in patients with cancer, they need to get
0: vaccinated. Yeah, and I suppose the, the the real thing that I've been pushing here a lot is that you can't just... This is like car insurance. You know, you, you can't get it when the accident occurs. You know, you've, you've got to... This is future-proofing, and the future in this case with COVID, as we're seeing at the moment in Sydney, is not far away in some circumstances, and we've seen that in, you know, places like Taiwan and South Korea and Vietnam and other areas where we thought things were going so well and they can get out of control very quickly. So an important message message. Grant, uh, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Uh, good luck with your second dose of uh, AstraZeneca. I hope it doesn't hit you too hard, but uh, I know you'll be better for it in the end and um, keep pushing the message to get as many cancer patients to get vaccinated. And also if people have any other concerns to see their GP in case there are undiagnosed cases that we're not getting on top of. Thanks so much, Grant.
6: Yeah, great uh, pleasure, Shane, and really looking forward to getting my antibodies boosted uh, with that second dose this week. We all need our second
0: doses. Absolutely. Thanks for taking to us, Professor Grant MacArthur, uh, Director of the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre. Uh, welcome back everybody you are listening to Einstein and gogo on truth We've only got a minute left I just wanted to tell you something kind of cool piece of science to leave you with um, mongoose mothers uh, if you haven't seen mongooses they're pretty cool little creatures but uh, apparently they all when they're in communities they all give birth on the same night which I found is bizarre they synchronize their births and they basically are not very good at working out which pups are their own now this works out really well for the mongoose because if uh, you happen to be a malnourished mother and your pups are consequently having problems. The fact that the well-nourished mothers don't know that they're not theirs is great because it means they take care of the malnourished pups better than you could. So it's a big thing about community in the mongoose world. They uh, they help each other and they help each other feed and carry and, and protect and groom uh, when some of the mothers involved aren't as healthy as the others, but because they're a little community, they all come together. Important message in there somewhere, folks. I don't know if you can find it, but uh, this just came out this week in... Um, in science, this stuff about the mongoose. And I think it's uh, important for us to remember we need the same approach at the moment across Australia with regards to these viral outbreaks. And a big cheerio to anyone, any of our friends listening in Sydney at the moment, uh, good luck with your mental health. Make sure you keep on top of that whilst in lockdown. It is rarely, if ever, mentioned in the presses that we see from our politicians, but it is one of the key risks that we all need to keep on top of. So keep in contact with colleagues and friends. And be kind to yourself. Uh, Your productivity is going to go down. That is a guarantee. And it doesn't mean shit. just uh, do what you can, stay safe, and you know we'll see this through a couple of weeks. Hopefully, it'll be all done. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo today, folks. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. It's always a pleasure bringing science to you and bringing all our great guests. Uh, we don't bring them into the studio much these days, but they're still online and always happy to talk about their work. So a big thank you to them and a thank you to my team uh, who are online earlier today. Have a fantastic Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere, and we'll chat to you again next week. <laughs> Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einsteinagogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.